Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Amelia Bachrock, who is Assistant Professor of Religion and Gender, um, also in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at Oberlin. Um, we will be speaking about her fascinating and uh, beautifully illustrated 2019 map and publication in the service of Krishna. Uh, Amelia, welcome to the podcast. Raj, it's really wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. And you know, this is the first time we're, we're having darshana, albeit sort of, you know, e-darshana, <laughs> but it's not our first rodeo, as they say. We've, we, have, we were on a panel. I think yes. we were on a panel or something that I organized at some point. Now many years ago, but it seems like yesterday in Toronto, I believe. The AAS. Yeah, some, yes. Or something. Or maybe the 2016. Oh, you know what? San Antonio. Um, sonality, the Sonality panel. Okay. Yes, you're right. Was. You know, all, all, the, all the years blend together, but um, it's really All good. the years <laughs> blend together. All the, all the, all the events blend together. Yes. yes. <laughs> but I actually, we, I think we have corresponded by email. It must have been five years ago, but we've never really seen each other. So it's. Interesting. All roads lead to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, apparently. I love that, and it's really good to be here. <laughs> a good road to be on. Great. Um, since we've already started talking about the AR without even trying to, I might as well point listeners to the fact that this podcast is one of three podcasts that pertains to um, a really interesting panel uh, at this year, uh, 2021's meeting of the American Academy of Religion. It's always in November. This year, it also happens to be in San Antonio again. And the panel um, well, the, the panel is called uh, New Books in Hindu Studies, which happens to be the former name of this podcast. Um, there will be two pairs of books being compared. We had um, Shankar Nair come on recently about Translating Wisdom. 
that will be discussed in tandem with Pat and Birchins at Genealogy of Devotion. Um, we also have Vijay Nagarajan's uh, Feeding a Thousand Souls, Chess had her on. That'll be discussed in tandem with Leia Como's book. Um, and Amelia happens to be the chair of that panel. Have I lied? Is that true? No, that is exactly right. Yeah, I am. I am the chair. Um, really excited to host these these books. Um, the roundtable, as it has in the past, I think now this is our third year, maybe second even. It's relatively new. Um, of, as Raj said, it highlights these four fantastic books um, with the aim of exposing scholars to. Um, the new theoretical interventions that these scholars make, um, but also to give, which is unique, I think, concrete ideas about how to incorporate uh, those interventions into our pedagogies as scholars. So people, the, the two pairs will both sort of discuss the, um, the intellectual interventions and the content, but also how to teach these books, both to um, undergraduates and graduates, which I think is really exciting part of the panel. Yeah, yeah, really love that. Really love that. And obviously hope to check it out. Um, you know, whether podcasting or publishing, you know, for me in the back of my brain, it's sort of a form of teaching, kind of sharing what we're we're yeah. doing to various audiences. <clears throat> and I have to ask, is it coincidence that the, that the, that initiative was called New Books in Hindu Studies? You know, is it I, at all? Th- that is a good question. I am new, relatively new um, to the, um, the the steering committee of that unit, the Hindu Studies unit. So that's a good question. It it might be coincidence. But it, it, seems to, it seems to convene perfectly. So it's really nice to showcase that. Sure, I like that sure. here. Yeah. And this is why I was happy to sort of, <laughs> as soon as I saw there was a new books in, in Hindu studies, uh, mind you, I think I had just uh, rebranded the podcast to new books in Indian religions at that point uh-huh, to make uh-huh. space, but but also to make space for uh, exactly folks like Shankar's work, right? Like, right. Um, right. Who's on the panel. Right. So right. I'm like, okay, you've got a new books in Hindu studies panel going on. We might mm-hmm. as well do a series. And then once I approached um, the co-chairs of the Hinduism unit, Harshita and Diani, I realized that half of you, uh, we already have interviews for, so it wouldn't take too much to get the other half of you on here. Perfect. It's wonderful. Yeah. Um, Enough yammering on about the AR and the panel. Let's get to the (laughs) good stuff. Let's get to the good stuff. What's your book about? Um, So this is a book that really highlights... um, a a distinct, unique manuscript, um, uh, which comes from the the Pushti Margi Hindu community. And this manuscript is um, illustrated, which itself is not so unique for um, what is, I'll talk a little bit about the dating, but the the colophone, the dating uh, of the text itself is uh, 1702, it's right there in the title. Um, And the manuscript contains uh, these very popular sacred life stories, hagiographies is one word for them, of the the founders of the Pushtimargi Hindu community and their disciples of the 16th century. And really importantly, the relationship that these uh, people have to the the popular Hindu deity Krishna. Um, So the book um, highlights the stories that are told um, far beyond this manuscript, but specific to this particular manuscript, importantly in relationship to these really unique um, and beautiful uh, illustrations. Um, again, illustrated manuscripts of this period aren't so unique in and of themselves, but these particular set of stories, this particular set of stories, um, really, we don't have um, illustrations that correspond to them. So the book really presents um, the sort of um, the nuances of these relationships as they are envisioned both um, in text and in painting. 
the book, I mean, this is um, this is the medium of sound, arguably, <laughs> arguably, arguably divine in terms of uh, uh, anything Indic. Um, having said that, <laughs> the book is full of oh, just gorgeous gorgeous uh images mm. like really and truly mm. and so it's it's um it's sort of the love child of a scholarly book and a coffee table book in many ways it <laughs> yes, seems that's right that's exactly <laughs> right that's what we've said yeah <laughs> um, fantastic yeah yeah it is it is, it is that it is that mm-hmm. how did this project come about for you that's a great question. Um, really, it's been a, a true collaboration um, with uh, the artist, uh, art collector, and art historian Amit Ambalal, who's based in Ahmedabad, Ahmedabad, um, Gujarat, which is the same city that I had um, have been living in to study uh, Gujarati language um, and to do both doctoral and postdoctoral studies um, between about 2009 and 2017 regularly. Um, my research was and remains focused on the ways that this contemporary Pushtimargi community in uh, based in Gujarat uh, reads and interprets this particular body of literature, this body of hagiographies um, written in Old Hindi, um, also known as Braj Pasha, this particular uh, type of Old Hindi. And so I was introduced to Amit um, after he'd given a talk on his own work on pre-modern Pushtimargi paintings. We struck up with this conversation about the relationship between um, visual and literary arts and he was really interested on my work in the hagiographies, um, which, as I said, tell these sacred life stories of the of the Pushti Mark's preceptors, their disciples. Um, he was really interested because he had this recently, uh, then back in 20, I think it was 2009, he'd acquired this very unique uh, manuscript, of course, the focus of this book. Um, and being the very generous uh, human that he is, he invited me to his um, home, his private collection, to spend time with this manuscript. Um, and I had spent time with manuscripts before, uh, but not not one quite as special as this. So um, really through this mutual excitement that we had about uh, pictures that tell stories, this phrase that sort of kept coming up again and again, um, we decided that we really should share this collection with the public through a really image-centered publication. So it, it came out of a, of a collaboration with him. Yeah. And you certainly have um, in this book. The subtitle is um, not a misnomer. It's the subtitle is uh, <laughs> illustrating the lives of eighty-four Vaishnavas mm-hmm. from a seventeen o two manuscript. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I'm both um, excited and envious that you have something like a, a precise year, like seventeen o two. It's like maybe Mahatma, yeah, fourth century, eighth right, century. Right, uh, we're not right, sure. Right, uh, right, right. <laughs> Right. You t- say say a bit to a broader audience. There may, may there may as well be um, uh, listeners who are on this path, or certainly cognizant of this path, and there may be some who are not quite aware of this path. Um, say a little bit about the historical context. Yeah, um, the historical context. Um, these stories likely circulated. That these hagiographies likely circulated um, really long before they were committed to writing. And I'll say more about the, the, the colophon and the dating of this manuscript in a moment. But um, they likely sort of circulated orally. And in fact, that sort of oral quality and oral residue, if you will, is really embedded in the, the written um, texts. But we know that um, in the 17th century, because we have manuscripts that predate this one, um, our earliest dated to 1640 CE, um, we know that they were committed to writing. 
um, in, in the 17th century, even if they had circulated orally for, for a long time. Um, and uh, the, the Bacharya, who is the first preceptor, the first guru, the first Goswami, these are all different terms used for the um, hereditary leaders of this community. Um, he um, lived in the 16th century. Uh, his, his death date is usually dated 1530 or 1531. Um, he um, in, inspired through his, his Vaishnava teachings, his devotion to Krishna, um, the, what is known as the Pushti Mark, the Path of Grace, uh, a tradition that focuses um, heavily on the intimate, cultivating the intimate relationships, um, intimate relationships uh, with this deity Krishna, playful childhood, um, ch childlike, I should say, um, deity in, in, in many of his iterations through um, ritual practices known as seva. Seva can be translated as loving service, but a sort of set of ritual practices that we can talk a bit more about later um, that, that he, he sort of inspired through his, his teachings and exegesis on, on various uh, popular texts. So um, the people who came into the fold, so to speak, uh, inspired by, by these teachings and by this practice of Seva, those are the, those are the, 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 the Vaishnavas, the 84 Vaishnavas whose stories are told here. Um, and of course, I say, I say this in the introduction, but there are in fact many, many more than 84 uh, people whose stories are told here. Um, sometimes whole families get sort of lumped under, under one name um, in the text. Um, but these are the folks whose, whose stories are, are narrated. And of course, we learn a lot about Vallabhacharya, this first preceptor of the Pushti Marg and his family as well. Um, but perhaps unique to this um, this type of literature is that the hagiographies are not focused solely on the hereditary leaders, on the saint, so to speak, himself, but really on um, on his disciples. So it's it's a unique set of um, stories. Do you maybe want to dive into that point about the dating that you wanted to make? Yes, and right. So the dating you asked about the manuscript. So yes, you, you say you, you're envious of this date. Well, dates are sticky things. Um, and so even if the colophon itself set, tells us um, that that scribe at that moment said, hey, this is this is uh, Victim Samavat, what is it, 1758, I think, right, which we've translated to um, 1702. Um, we, it's it's quite clear from 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 my my time with the manuscript from from Amit Ambalal's and others that it actually um, is is a manuscript that has been compiled over centuries really <laughs> or at least decades um, no centuries um, so it it is it, it might have been um, a date that was uh, the date that the scribe was basing the manuscript on from another manuscript um, we do know that the um, um, oldest parts of the manuscript could have come from 1702. The paintings themselves, however, um, are, 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 are likely 19th century paintings, and we know this by the style um, of the paintings. Um, so some of the pages of the manuscript um, have been renumbered, and you can actually see that in some of the images we've included in the book. Um, so it's really the sort of piecemeal, yet in the end, complete manuscript um, with all of the stories that um, one would expect from 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 this uh, this particular text, right? It corresponds to other manuscripts and then later printed editions. Um, so we have a clear date, yes, um, but we're not exactly sure um, if it represents, um, you know, the the entire text. Right? It's more complicated. Well, if there was an ambiguity about authorship or dates, it certainly wouldn't be of 
South Asia would it? Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> this, right. This is this is not dissimilar. This uh, is not no, not dissimilar to my eyes to sort of you know put on as process in various mm-hmm. manuscripts and mm-hmm. then arriving at a critical edition. It seems that maybe um, uh, you were closer to or you or you, you have manuscripts intact that you're using um, rather than ha- them having to be critically edited. That's correct. Right. 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 Could you say a word? Uh, we'll dive into the book in, a, in more closer detail in a moment. Could you say a word about maybe the life of the text, or the world in front of the text, or, or how's it, how we know a little bit about the, the world behind the text? Yeah. Now, how how is this used today, if at all? Oh, wonderful. Um, this very much connects to my my broader uh, research, um, which is to study how these stories and this the, the Chorasi Vaishnava Givarta, right? The, the sort of um, the Vartas, this word can be translated in different ways, the hagiographies, the chronicles, the stories of these 84 Vaishnavas. It's sort of one collection of Vartas. Uh, there are others in this uh, Pushtimargi tradition. Um, many of them, but particularly this text, um, these stories, I should say, um, are read and used in people's um, everyday uh, ritual uh, practices in, um, in Gujarat and beyond. Um, much of my broader research has been based on spending time with folks who read these stories virtually, uh, very often in satsang, that is in sort of community together, right? Um, in gatherings of the faithful, if you will, um, to um, enjoy. I mean, there's so much enjoyment in these in these stories. Um, they, they are, of course, are didactic. Um, they teach about the history of the community. They offer this, um, I think I have this term, um, that came up sort of in conversation with, with Vaishnavas themselves, of course, vicarious epiphany. They offer people a chance to sort of um, engage um, with these great devotees of the past and how they encountered Krishna. Um, and um, they also give sort of um, lessons on how to perform perform seva, even though that seva, that ritual practice, is very different often in certain ways um, in people's contemporary lives today, right, than the 17th, or than the 16th century, as the stories are sort of based in that pre-modern context, um, they, they offer all these different things to readers. Um, so what, 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 do, what do people do? They, they read and discuss them. They talk about how the stories influence and can teach them um, in their own lives today. So they're very much alive, very much living, uh, living texts. Yes, there was a, um, um, uh, I'm glad I asked that question. Uh, <laughs> it, um, um, uh, always naive questions, right? Uh, the, uh, <laughs> um, Amelia has a forthcoming monograph, I believe, called um, Religious Reading in Everyday Lives in uh, Pushtimargi Hinduism, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. That, that monograph will foreground sort of the life of the text, the world in front of the text. That's exactly right, yeah. Perfect. Exactly so right. We, know, we know a bit about the world behind the text. Mm-hmm. We know a bit about the world in front of the text. Mm-hmm. Now let's dive into the world within the text. And yes. maybe a good way to frame that is how is the book structured? The, the, this book itself, yes. Um, my book, uh, the, In the Service of Krishna, um, and I'll start with this. I'm, I'm, I'm into the, I'm thinking about paratexts a lot these days as I work on my other monograph. But it starts with a note on translation. And I'll talk more about translation. We could, maybe you have questions about that too, so we can talk more about that. But I'll just say it starts with a note on translation and acknowledgments. Um, because again, as I said, um, this, this book vis-a-vis acknowledgements is really a collaboration um, and one that 
I owe to not only Ahmed Umbalal and, and his family, really, um, but um, my dear friend, Polomi Shah, and brilliant designer who helped with this book, and to the, the folks at Mappin and, and many other many other conversation partners, um, Pushtimargi Vaishnavas and hereditary leaders, Goswami. So it starts there. Um, and then, then the book um, is um, opened really uh, formally with a foreword uh, by Ahmed Umbalal, who gives some um, of his own sort of perspectives on, on this manuscript, um, and a little bit more broadly on the, the traditions of painting in the Pushtimarg. And for those who are listening and interested, um, his beautiful book, uh, Krishna as Srinathji, which came out, I believe, late 90s and is still available and in circulation, is a wonderful study of um, Pushtimargi uh, painting. So uh, do look there for further details and, and details on technical technical things in, in painting the Pushtimar. Um, his foreword is followed by my own uh, brief introduction, which I've tried to, to make um, um, available to lots of different kinds of readers. So there's some technical details, really uh, historical details, but really I hope that the, the introduction offers an invitation into the, the world of, of this, um, this manuscript, but the Chorasi Vaishnava and Kivartha as a text more broadly. Um, so that introduction, for instance, um, um, talks a little bit about uh, the contours of, of, of the narratives themselves, how they are um, each very distinct and interesting, but also somewhat formulaic in that, for instance, um, they describe very often the process by which each of these Vaishnavas, each of these figures whose life stories are told are first introduced to the Pushtimarg, are first initiated uh, formally uh, through formal acts of initiation into the community, how they meet Vallabhacharya, the, the preceptor, their guru, um, and most importantly, how they begin to practice seva, this form of loving worship, um, through uh, singing songs, through preparing special food items, etc., um, for Krishna. So the, the introduction really tries to give the broader um, context of how these stories operate, um, but really focusing in on uh, seva. Again, we can talk more about that as our conversation unfolds. Um, and then follow, and I say a bit more about the, 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 the manuscript itself, its provenance, as we discussed briefly. And then uh, the body of the text really is um, excerpts from, from these different vartas. And you'll see, and people will notice how do, how do I write it? I have to even look here. Um, I say from the Vartha of such and such individual, because these are just selections. Some some of them represent what might be a complete Vartha, one complete story, but very often it's just one selection. And I've tried to choose in, I think it's 27, just shy of 30 different selections from the broader uh, text, um, stories that um, correspond to the images in clear ways, and it also give, uh, give the viewer a sense of the diversity of images, of illustrations that, that are, appear in the book. Um, so the translations, again, excerpts from the larger uh, text, um, and they, they, they often have some notes as well, so I sort of frame them a little bit for the reader. But they're very brief vignettes of what are already, relatively speaking, brief stories. Um, and then the book ends with a sort of index of all of the very small images. Um, maybe somebody might need a, ma a magnifying glass to see them very well, but they are there. You can see um, all the images um, from the, the 85 images. There are 85 total illustrations, that is, 
um, in the book and even includes um, pictures of the manuscript pages without illustrations that correspond to some of the stories that omit illustrations because some of the narratives have three or four and some have none. So that's an interesting sort of um, quirk about this, about this text. And then I have a glossary because again, I want this, this book to be available to different types of readers. So some of the rather technical devotional terms um, um, are described in the glossary. So that's, that's the, that's the book. Now, um, why is Seva so important, do you think? What's going on with Seva here? <laughs> Seva is really at the heart um, in my reading. And of course, mine is one in conversation with lots of people over lots of uh, time doing research. But in, in my reading of this text um, and of the Pushti Marg more broadly, um, Seva is central because it is that is that tool uh, through which to have intimate encounters uh, with Krishna, um, the, the goal of, of the Pushtimargi devotee. Um, so Seva is in, in the Vartas, in, in, in these texts, is somewhat idiosyncratic. There's not a very clear list of things that one must do. Um, you know, generally speaking, there's um, the, the, image, the, the narratives rather um, discuss sort of prescribed things like bathing before starting one's ritual practices. Um, and preparing certain kinds of food items like this. But the Vartas are very clear that these practices um, have to be flexible. They have to be malleable. They have to be based on the means and the social context of each uh, devotee, him or herself. Um, so they really, Seva is really about um, sort of bridging the otherworldly um, um, world of of krishna his lila his divine play um with the very mundane everyday worlds of the diversity of figures that we see represented in this text um so seva is this sort of link this this bridge the set of practices um that uh, uh brings the devotee in relationship to their their beloved deity I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off lovely now these these uh 27 uh vignettes that you dive into and, and narrate and explicate i mean there's there's so much there are there ones that stand out to you most that, that gripped you the most that intrigued you the most you know sometimes it's hard to choose and every time i come back to the text um 
I sort of find <laughs> find new beauty um, and curiosities, um, humor. I've mentioned humor um, in the narratives again and again. But I suppose that the the ones that I highlight in the introduction of the book um, do speak to some of my favorite, if, if I can use that word, um, narratives, those that I just keep returning to again and again. So there's this one about um, a woman who doesn't have a proper name. And in fact, many of the, the um, devotees don't aren't given formal names. They're such and such woman from this place or that place. And here uh, she's sort of designated by this broad caste designation that Kshatriya woman, right? Um, this one, so I, I offer the episode both in the introduction and it's also translated more broadly in, in the body of the text about a woman who um, um, has become sort of um, destitute um, through, she's a, she's a widow, um, and she spins cotton to make money uh, to feed herself, but really namely to feed her um, what's called a svarup, a form of Krishna that she uh, keeps in her own home. So many of these devotees in the stories um, are bestowed with these um, um, living icons, really, of Krishna that they care for, that they feed. And feeding is so important. I talk about food so much. Anyway, the story talks about how um, with whatever money she makes from her spinning as a single uh, widowed woman, um, she she goes to buy uh, food uh, for, you know, really, I should read, I should read part of it, Raj. Do you think I should do that? May, may I read part of it? Absolutely. Okay, so let me let, let me read. I, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll I'll read a part of it. So for those who have the book or are looking, this is on page thirty-one of my introduction. So uh, the vartas, I should say, have episodes. They're called prasangs, sort of little peaks into little uh, in, into these lives. So this is the first prasang, the first episode. Um, and I should say the image um, corresponds with the story. And I'll sort of pause when I get to that moment and talk about it. So here's the story. After some time, the woman ran out of money, became destitute. After completing seva for her Krishna Swarup, she would spin cotton and sell it to support herself. Whenever the vegetable seller would come by the house of the woman, Sri Thakurji, this is a sort of a name for Krishna, an epithet for Krishna, would call out. He would speak, oh ma, the vegetable lady has come, go get me something. Then the woman would go and buy a small amount of everything. Similarly, when the fruit seller would come, Thakurji would say, oh ma, go fetch me some fruit. Even then, if she had only a little bit of money, the woman would buy a variety of fruit for Takuruji. After observing this woman's behavior, the fruit and vegetable seller came to suspect that the woman would not allow her darling son out of the house because she feared he, he would be given the evil eye. If this lady comes to buy from my cart first thing in the morning, thought the vegetable seller, then I'll surely be lucky in my sales throughout the day. I'll wait beside her door each day until she comes to buy from the cart. Indeed, the old woman would come um, daily and purchase all types of items. Now, I just love this part. Cucumbers, spinach, and all types of greens and other fresh items. These little details about the food that is purchased. From these items, she would lovingly prepare food to offer Takurji. One day, when the vegetable lady was passing by the woman's home, Takurji ran out of the house and called, Come quick, my mother is coming. Go, come, go fetch me something. The lady heard the beautiful voice and came running, but Takuruji quickly went back inside the house and was never seen. My darling, you mustn't run outside like that. You'll be given the evil eye, the woman scolded Takuruji. But the vegetable lady was about to leave. How would you get me anything? How would you feed me, he responded. And they continued arguing like this, right? Um, and then, this is, this, is, this is this very sweet part, Krishna 
Takuruji says to her, um, just like a worldly child, um, well, how will you feed me? How will you, how will you feed me my meal? The woman assured Takuruji, telling him that she would get vegetables from another vendor or from the bazaar. Don't argue with me, just be content, she says. Then, and this is the part that corresponds to the image, um, like a small child, Takuruji climbed up on the woman's shoulders and whined. But when will you bring me my food? In this way, Takuruji bestowed much grace on the woman. So the image doesn't quite show Takuruji climbing on her shoulders, but you can see um, um, the woman uh, sitting in front of this uh, childlike figure that is Krishna here, and he sort of has has his hand has his hands on her knee. Now, I have a toddler myself, so just the sort of um, the way in which this is so um, human and down to earth and, and funny, really. Um, but also, it's really depicting this amazingly intimate, um, blessed. Uh, graced um, relationship that this woman has. Uh, it's just a beautiful story. I, I always come back to this. Well, there's such an emphasis on lived embodied experience. Everything from the, the, how how um, ornate and luscious and beautiful the, mm. the images are to the, the the vignettes you see about cucumbers and, <laughs> and a whining toddler, not even a toddler, young child. And, you know, there's just, I keep coming back to this idea of, of, of imminence and tangibility. Mm-hmm. And, I, I, you know, one of the, one of these, these beautiful um, Krishnite images that comes to mind when I read many of these is um, uh, <laughs> Yashoda scolding Krishna for eating dirt. <laughs> That's right. That's and, right. And him, That's right. Him, him being like any kid who, who wants to avoid judgment or punishment, he, he fibs about it and just says, open your mouth. And then, through that that immediacy, that imminence, she's she's brought into this cosmic right. realm of this That's abyss right. that she can't comprehend. That's like, right. That's right. That's put it right. back. Put it back. Put it back. That's Eat right. all the dirt you want. That's I'm right. done. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then and then yeah, she 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 can't, she can't handle that, right? It's her child. And that and and in fact, I opened the the introduction with with a story just like that, and comparing it to the sort of Vishvarupa um, episode. Um, from the Gita, right, uh, where Arjun sort of asks to see Krishna in his sort of manif- his, you know, Vishvarupa in, in, in form of the form of forms, right? Um, but then can't handle it quite. Uh, wants him to come back to this this human form. So there's the sense that um, even in these very distinct stories that are really specific to the Pushtimarn, that Krishna is related to, um, of course, Krishna as. Um, a deity that, that transcends this community, of course, um, in this time frame, um, one that is always both of the world and beyond the world at once. So, yeah. Beautiful. Are there any other vignettes that you wanted to comment on or share? Or really anything about the book that you wanted to share? Um, well, I will say a word about translation eventually, but let me see if, let me see what, what else I can. There are so many, it's hard to choose from. Um, I make the crude analogy at times, but purposefully crude that, you know, it's like, it's like picking, picking favorites among your children, right? That's right. <laughs> That's like. right. Um, I mean, I, perhaps I won't, won't uh, read another one, um, but um, there's a very short one. Um, this is uh, from the Bartha of uh, Rukmini. Um, and this is a, a, a daughter of another um, Vaishnava who, who appears in the text. And I think her whole family really has their story told. And um, she, this just to sort of uh, sum up here. Although the oh, the image is just so, this image is just so beautiful. Um, she is um, 
in Benares. She has traveled to Benares from her home elsewhere um, to um, to bathe not herself but her Swarup, her her icon, her living icon of Krishna in um, the sacred waters of the of the Ganges of the Ganga, um, and she there encounters um, the son of Vallabhacharya, the son of this community's preceptor, who is in his own right um, a, a great teacher of the community. Um, and he asks to, to speak with her. He's there with other disciples at the river's edge himself. Um, he says to her, um, when's the last time you you, you, you came here to, to Benares to bathe yourself? She said, well, I, I haven't bathed in 24 years, which is how old she is. And, and he, you wouldn't quite get this unless you really know. She says this because she has been so... and. and Actually, the, the Vartha requires a little bit of explanation from, from the comment, commentator whose, whose work is also included in this, and I'll say more about that in a minute. But um, 24 years have gone by since she, she thought about her own the cleansing of her own body because she's been just focused on her, her icon of Krishna and cleansing him and bathing him in the water. So it's just this beautiful, again, this idea, and also supposed to be funny though, right? Um, that these devotees get so lost in their other world of devotion that sometimes they, they forget about themselves. So, and the picture, the image, um, is just so so beautiful um, of uh, Sri Gusainji. This is how he's called, Bhutalnachi, another name for the son of uh, Balabacharya, sitting at the banks of the Ganges, doing his pranayam with his uh, um, disciples who are much smaller in stature than him. This is always the case that Vallabhacharya and Gusainji are shown as great teachers to be larger in stature um, with Rukmini, this woman um, at his side. He's sitting, seated be, beneath a, a tree. I don't know that there's a tree growing on the cots of the Ganges, but very often these teachers are shown beneath a tree, the Chonkar tree, which is meant to be um, sort of um, mitigate the heat and power of their of their bodies from from basically burning the ground so it's it sort of neutralizes their 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 seat they're seated there anyway i could go on about the details but um really one has to see them in person absolutely and if one didn't glean from from the narrative that he was larger than life then certainly from the image that's right that's exactly right <laughs> from the visual storytelling that's exactly right like, larger than life yeah. um a couple points come to sure. mind um, um um which one first yeah you mentioned in passing just now this this commentator like what what do you mean what's what's a commentator and what are you looking at here right so um there are different recensions of this um text beyond this one manuscript um some that are circulate with this very popular embedded commentary called the bhav prakash the sort of um, illumination of the text's inner meaning this word bhav can mean many things but that's how i might translate it here um and it's attributed to um, another descendant of, of Vallabhacharya, Hari Raiji. And um, that's, that's the recension that this, this manuscript is based on. And so, and it's actually very close to, to other um, manuscripts um, that come out of this recension and even to those later printed editions that are based on those manuscripts, which actually made it a bit easier to read through some of the more difficult to read um, parts of the text if they had been, for instance, not preserved well in the, the ink was the writing was uh, blurred um but the comment the, the commentary what does it do um it basically it anticipates uh readers questions there's one thing it does several things it anticipates questions that readers might have um and in one sense it, it, it acts in a very modern way because or contemporary way i should say because sometimes the questions that the commentator might um 
ask the reader, you must be thinking this. I think, well, I really was thinking that. Like, how did you know that? Um, so it's kind of interpreting some of the, um, let's say, uh, more dense philosophical uh, points that these um, sort of down-to-earth stories are trying to illuminate from Vallabhacharya's much broader um, set of uh, teachings, mostly in Sanskrit. Um, so they might, the comment, commentator might, for instance, say, well, here, this story illuminates um, the teaching that Vallabhacharya has given in such and such treatise about uh, this, let's say, point about humility um, or um, self-sacrifice. Um, so it does that. Um, it also does this really beautiful um, um, thing where it, it it places these very, again, worldly, uh, down-to-earth, sometimes rough around the edge of its figures, um, in the broader context of Krishna's uh, lila, his divine play. So very often um, the, the, the story itself will begin with this part of the commentary, which says this um, earthly figure corresponds to the this divine counterpart of Krishna and his other counterparts in the eternal world of Braj um, and um, has come to earth as this human form. So it, so these figures, when we meet them, are already placed as sort of divine and otherworldly with counterparts in, um, in Krishna's eternal realm. So I'll just give one example. Vallabhacharya himself is uh, none other. His divine counterpart is Radha, is, the, is Krishna's beloved, known as Swamaniji in, in these, these stories. So um, that's, that's how that commentary, commentary works. And it's sort of blended into the stories in such a way that um, for readers who are familiar with these recensions, it's just sort of part and parcel of the text. That's great. Um, uh, <laughs> very recently, um, I had on the podcast, um, Makamas Taylor. He's a, a scholar of uh, the Puranas at um, Australian National University. And he just finished uh, of, uh, a translation, a, a blank verse translation of the entire Vishnu Purana. It's the second Fantastic. time in, in, in nearly 200 years. Wow. Nearly 200 years ago was the first and last time it was translated into English. And um, I remember having this moment um, Thank goodness that I mute when my guests speak, so the, so so listeners aren't distracted by my giggles and my gas <laughs> and my, my God knows what, all, all favorable, of course. Um, but this moment where you know I had him kind of unpack. So you know, what's that translation process like? And uh, uh, <laughs> very humbly said, you know, you know the the the, the 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 you know unlike the Bhagavata, for example, the Vishnu Puranas in basic Sanskrit that even I can understand, and and you know, in this moment talking about the commentators, he he was like. The commentators basically they they clarify certain words in certain contexts, <laughs> and what he said was for people like me who are translating the text and had this moment where it was like that the the edic emic divide yeah. just collapsed in that right, moment because he, right, he was right. like the commentator <laughs> their their efforts are for people like me. That's right. Oh, that's beautiful. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. All that as a long-winded and hopefully yeah. colorful bridge to this question about translation. Yes. How how does that work for you? Well, it is. I'll just say first the translation, and I'm, I'm sure you and so many listeners and others you've, you've interviewed here have this experience too. That it's one of the most delightful, but also challenging um, parts of my work. <laughs> um, and I would say to me, the sort of first and foremost rule of thumb as a translator. I've been doing this for many years, but I still count myself as a novice in many ways, is to be able to be flexible enough that I can both engage very, very deeply 
at the level where I might, you know, spend weeks trying to figure out what one word means and the context for it. Um, so very, very closely um, learning the unique ecology of the text. I think I'm borrowing the phrase from the eminent late scholar A.K. Ramanujan, um, to learn the unique ecology, but also to be able to move, sort of move myself far enough away that I'm not sort of bound to the text so much that I feel somehow un unable to move beyond. There's no such thing as a literal translation, but as literal as possible a translation as one could give. Because especially, and of course, every piece of literature, every text is so different to translate. But this text, <clears throat> these are storytelling texts that, as I said, have this amazing sort of oral residue to them. Um, they're meant to be read aloud. Um, and if I get too, if I get too literal, um, I lose the flavor of the text. I lose the, the tone, some of the humor. Um, and e even, even as I, um, sort of say this, I realize how, how impossible it is to sort of, you know, to do that. But I do my best to, um, to work through the text as closely as I can to really get into the nitty gritty sort of details of each word, but then really to move away from it um, and to try to bring across the, the, yeah, the, the flavor, the affect uh, to, to my readers. Yeah, we've touched on this theme um, a number of times before, I think also with McComas Taylor hmm. um, recently, but also last year with Archana Vingatesen, phenomenal yeah. translator, phenomenal, yes. and this 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 sort of um, this hybrid entity that is scholarly translation of of narrative or poetic works, mm. where mm. you need your your gears working well to understand precisely as best you can what what the word means, mm. what the case ending in Sanskrit mm. is, what right. what it, whatever right. would have meant in that day, all that stuff, right. and yet just. Just, you know, um, moving that, uh, like converting as you're converting currency from one to another language, um, you miss the whole purpose of all the, uh, the, the, the purpose of it is to, is to, is to point to uh, a meaning, a sense of flavor. Exactly. The, the purpose is to point. And it's sort of this, mm -hmm. this, this, the, you have to be really out there, uh, <laughs> probably when I would qualify for that to, to, um, to to aim to render something in a different language in a different culture in a different time mm -hmm. mindful of the flavor this this je ne sais quoi yes this ineffable thing that you're trying it's like that's palpable to anybody who can discern it and then you have to sort of um you know, one thing that's come up a number of times when talking about this is some people have other people involved where they'll share um, verses Absolutely. with um, with members of their family, perhaps. And I yeah. wonder, what was that like for you? Like, would you, what was the actual process like? Like, would you come up with a Wonderful verse? Wonderful question. Would it, right. Would you share it? Right. So, th so this is, you know, prose. Um, and I started reading these texts. Actually, the first time I learned about them was through... Um, Rupert Snell. Rupert Snell was my wonderful, one of my wonderful mentors at uh, University of Texas at Austin. A uh, great scholar, as many listeners know, of, of Braj Pasha literature. Um, and his, um, I don't remember publication date, but 1990s um, um, classical Hindi, a reader, a reader in classical Hindi is what he called it, um, sort of not only talks about the structure and history of Braj Pasha, um, grammar, etc., but uh, gives sort of selected translations and readings. Um, and so he included in that um, reader some excerpts of these vartas. So I sort of learned myself, uh, I first learned about these these texts through that, that um, 
reader and first read these texts with Rupert Snell as a graduate student in Austin. So he was my first conversation partner. Um, and so even some of the, some of the, I don't, it's hard, I can't remember now, but some of the selections I have in this book probably um, I first read and tried to start translating as a graduate student at UT Austin, but really the, the process when it came down to refining it for these texts was to kind of um, go through somewhat literal uh, um, translations and then to sort of carry them with me. This book, as many books, of course, um, has, has a, had a long gestation period. So as I was back in India doing um, back and forth from the U.S. to India doing research, um, each of these stories uh, that I've translated here, I had conversations about with um, those who read them every day. And nearly every, every single one of them, I had questions about particular words, um, what they meant, words uh, that meant, I knew meant certain things in, in the context of this, um, of Seva, for instance, that did not resonate with any of the meanings that I, you know, found in dictionaries, etc. So the process of translation is one of conversation, ethnographic research, um, and then again, moving moving far enough away that I can really sort of um, try to bring out the, the, the humor, the flavor, the affect. Um, so many, many, many drafts, even for these very small selections. Yeah. <laughs> it's nice to see. It's, it's probably interesting for folks to get a, a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, mm-hmm. and see, you know, what, what happens to, to get the show on. Um, mm-hmm. um, what... Uh, there's one thing I want to touch on that's not sure. directly related to research, but I think it's probably um, it's probably innate to this type of work, and mm. that is the relationship between in the South Asian context, right? The relationship, arguably everywhere, but especially in South Asia, the relationship between storytelling and pedagogy and mm. teaching. And there was oh, I can't remember one. This might have been 2018. I did um. I edited a volume for for online magazine of the AAR, um, Religious Studies News. That's what it is. And it was called something like Harnessing the Power of Storytelling in the Hindu Studies Classroom. Um, uh, The extent to which um, uh, uh, teaching Hindu stories is teaching Hinduism in many ways. Uh, Absolutely. um, Could you say a bit about that? I don't want to put words into your mouth, but I'd like to sort of generate a bit of conversation. Could you say a bit about that connection with with, with the work, uh, with this work. Yeah, that's so interesting that you asked that because I, I really, the, the first time I actually ever used my own research in my teaching um, was just this past year, this past spring. Um, and I assigned some of the, the introduction and several selections of these stories to my students. Um, and actually they corresponded to our reading of, of the Gita. Um, and I wanted them to sort of we learned about Krishna later in the semester as well, but I wanted them to, even in their introduction to Krishna through the Gita, to get a sense of how diverse this deity was and all the sort of registers um, um, of, of texts that that, that are, are devoted to him. Um, and um, it was, yeah, it became a really wonderful reminder that... Um, that that my work and this this trans the, these translations here um, are very much uh, part of uh, not only the practice of storytelling in the Pushtimari community itself, but a wonderful sort of uh, tool for for teaching my students, right? For introducing them to how uh, stories function um, in people's everyday lives, um, yeah, and in text. So. Um, but more broadly, Raj, I mean, really, that's the, I think you're right that so much of, of, of my teaching of um, 
South Asian religions in the classroom is revolves around stories. I mean, sometimes, I, this, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No. And the story is being so consciously didactic. Oh, right? absolutely. Yes. I mean, this is one of the funny things is, you know, when I first started studying um, this community, um, spending time with folks um, in, in this community, they said, oh, well, of course it makes sense that you're studying these hagiographies because if you're just learning, this is these this is this is a great place to start. Um, they'll they'll teach you everything you need to know, um, which of course is only partly true because anything not that I know much, but everything I know comes from the conversations about these stories with people um, as they are as they are living texts. But uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, but, but right there, you point to this. You point to another piece there, like the web of uh, the storytelling of the text. And um, the life story is drawing on the text. It, it's right. this lived experience. That's so right. It's beautiful. That's right. um, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on uh, pertaining to your book? Um, well, I could certainly go on and on, but I'll just say just say one other really important thing. Um, <clears throat> perhaps especially to those who who do know about this community more broadly or have read about it before, is that so much. Um, wonderful scholarship, um, but so much scholarship that has um, been published on um, the Pushti Mark um, um, focuses, um, and not wrongly, on the um, sort of illustrious heritage of the Goswamis, of the hereditary leaders descending from Vallabhacharya, this first preceptor of the 16th century, um, their Sanskrit treatises, um, and their lives. Um, and these narratives, um, and so much really how these narratives in this this manuscript as they are highlighted by these paintings these narratives and these paintings um, really focus on domestic worship um, domestic worship and the um, that includes uh, men and women <laughs> and so we we get to see this amazing sort of peek into at least how the artists and authors here the scribes um, storytellers um, saw um, everyday lives of men and women um, in their homes, um, and that's that's really a d- distinct. I think that's really unique, something unique about the text um, and about uh, this manuscript that I would love people to notice um, as they think about this uh, this um, this text in terms of Pushti Margi studies, a sort of very small niche niche world, but um, uh, the domestic quality of Seva and how uh, all different types of figures, men and women, are, are represented. Well, I'm glad you're also speaking to. That's the intrigue about this podcast. I never know if it's for the specialists or the generalists. It seems to be for both, for both uh, as well as the continuing studies crowd. Um, um, say a quick word to close about who would certainly be interested in this book. Who's the book for? Yeah, wonderful question. Who's the book for? Um, really, the book is is meant to to attract as, as wide an audience as possible. Um, and really, the book is... I have heard heard both from from scholars and specialists, um, and from folks from the Pushti Margi community, um, and the latter, um, those who I've heard from, um, I would say I sort of privilege here in 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 this uh, publication, in the sense that um, you know I, I actually really I mean I so value these podcasts because I really do think that uh, folks will listen to and engage with scholarly work, academic work that perhaps is less available um, through monographs themselves, um, sometimes, right? Um, but I really, um, you know, to hearing from, from folks, uh, Pushti Margi uh, Vaishnavas, 
um, who have shared uh, this book, perhaps with younger family members, uh, children who don't read or uh, haven't had interest in reading Braj Pasha or even Gujarati or Hindi translations, but um, have engaged with the, the English translations here of these texts has been really um, exciting to me. So this book is for, for, for those folks, especially, but really for, for anybody who is interested in um, the very distinct um, way that pictures tell stories in this pre-modern context. Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast today. Raj, thank you so much. It's been really, really wonderful to speak with you. My pleasure. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Amelia Bachrock, um, assistant professor at Oberlin, um, about her her uh, new, uh, rich, beautiful book, In the Service of Krishna. Uh, you'll have links for the book in the podcast notes. Uh, as well as links pertaining to the upcoming American Academy of Religion panel that she's chairing, featuring um, uh, works uh, that are also featured on the podcast. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep listening. Oh, uh, they keep telling me to do this, but I f- keep forgetting. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Raj Balkran. There you go. I joined Twitter last year, mainly for the podcast. Stay safe, stay sane, keep listening, and keep contemplating the Leela of Krishna. (laughs) Take care. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.